0: Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 7, Red in the Face. Hello and welcome to our review of Mad Men's seventh episode, Red in the Face. After watching this episode for the first time, it immediately stuck out to me as a transition episode. We're more than halfway through the premiere season of Mad Men, with several larger stories to come. But Red in the Face doesn't tell any of those stories. It instead moves Mad Men forward slowly treating one of the show's critical relationships, one hinted at but only superficially explored so far. In Red in the Face, we've at last reached an episode focused on Mad Men's memorable friendship between Don Draper and Roger Sterling. Immediately following Mad Men's most comprehensive episode to date, Red in the Face is more straightforward. The episode centers around Roger and Don, with a backdrop of comic relief unfolding as Pete Campbell tries to return a wedding gift. We've seen Mad Men portray several of Don's relationships, from his marriage to Betty, to his affair with Midge, to his adversarial conflict with Pete. Red in the Face shows Don's friendship with his boss, Roger Sterling, a man of charisma and debauchery, a Navy veteran, a man with his name on an advertising agency. Of course, Roger has already appeared in several episodes. Actor John Slattery was one of the first cast for Mad Men's pilot, At that time a well-known actor, he took a roundabout path to the show, saying in a later interview that, the part of Roger wasn't as much in evidence in the pilot, so they tricked me by saying they wanted me to read for Don's part. And then they said, how about this guy instead? I took it on faith, basically. Matt Weiner said it would be a great part, and it was. Roger is a U.S. Navy veteran of World War II. He's a named partner of Sterling Cooper, and manages many of the agency's most significant accounts, including Lucky Strike. But Roger's nonchalant sarcasm often belies his authority within the office. And at times, it seems he desires more to be liked than to be successful. Roger's most frequent scene partner is, of course, Don Draper. Mad Men often uses Roger to expose Don's inner monologue. The two seek each other's advice, often relating to each other due to their shared authority, family struggles, and military service. But Red in the Face expands on Roger's character and his relationship with Don. And in its depiction of male friendship, the episode treats themes of power, masculinity, and generational differences. The opening scene shows Don moving about his office as he talks on the phone with Betty's psychiatrist, Dr. Arnold Wayne. Dr. Wayne discusses Betty's treatment, concluding that Betty has the emotional maturity of a child. Note how Don moves about his office throughout this scene deeply agitated at the thought of Betty's emotional troubles. He thanks Dr. Wayne and hangs up, his finger pressed against the phone on the ringer. This ending shot transitions seamlessly into Roger pouring a glass of milk. He sits in his office talking on the phone with his wife as he adds vodka to the drink. Bert Cooper enters to remind Roger about a meeting with Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. He scolds Roger for smoking, referencing Neville Chamberlain and the 1938 Munich Agreement hinting at Roger's inability to deny his vices. But Roger isn't convinced, and quips back, All I can get from this story is that Hitler didn't smoke. And I do. Cooper leaves, calling Roger peanut before he exits. We first saw this fatherly demeanor portrayed in episode 4, New Amsterdam, when Bert single-handedly squashed Pete Campbell's firing. In New Amsterdam, We saw a photo in the office of Bert with a young Roger Sterling. But Mad Men goes further to highlight the differences between its named executives. It portrays Bert as an eccentric. He's short, round, and doesn't wear shoes. He speaks whimsically, almost in riddles, and rarely addresses any subject directly. He's nearly the opposite of the handsome, hedonistic Roger Sterling. It borders on parody at times. But I think there's room in Mad Men's world for an idiosyncratic executive like Bert. We should undoubtedly interpret this as a generational contrast, but it was important for Mad Men to differentiate between Bert and Roger on a personal level. They're both executives, both from older generations, and both will be on the wrong side of history in future scenes. Drawing such noticeable stylistic differences between these guys helps us keep track of Mad Men's power dynamic. Roger eventually exits his office and spots Joan leaving for the weekend. Recall that our last episode, Babylon, revealed Roger and Joan's affair and showed them meeting in hotel rooms. Here Roger comments that his wife and daughter are out of town. He invites Joan to his house for the weekend. But Joan's suitcase is already packed. Her roommate, Carol, makes her first appearance in this scene, lingering in the background and directing disapproving glances at Roger. Joan tells Roger that she needs more notice before seeing him, and leaves with Carol. Searching for another way to occupy himself, Roger approaches Don and Peggy. Don has dinner plans at home, but Roger shames him into an after-work drink at the bar. Reservations at home, I've had those. Easiest ones to break. Pete Campbell enters from off-screen, with Roger swatting him away. As Roger leaves with Don, Pete lingers. He asks Peggy what she's working on, and is surprised when she reveals that she's writing copy for Belle Jolie Lipstick. Pete offers to look things over, and Peggy accepts gratefully. The exchange is full of dramatic irony, with Peggy interpreting Pete's help as genuine, perhaps as a sign she's holding on to some romantic interest. But after Pete's actions in New Amsterdam, it's hard to assume his interest in Peggy's work is genuine. The next scene shows Don and Roger sitting at the bar in the Hollywood restaurant Musso and Frank's. This scene is another example of Red in the Face's fantastic camera work. It opens with a low shot, the camera tracking horizontally over the bar before pausing on Don and Roger. The scene cuts quickly between a two-shot of Roger and Don, reverse angles of each, and a final shot focused on two girls at the bar. The men talk business, while Roger trades flirting glances with the two young women. He first laments time and age, noting that... At a certain age, they lose that. What? The glow of pure youth like they hit 30 and somebody puts out a light. Roger then asks Don about his dinner plans and reveals the disarray in his marriage and family life. Mona hasn't cooked since Margaret stopped eating. They're fighting it out. I'm the one that gets hurt. Don feels sorry for Roger and invites him to dinner. He gets up from the bar and moves to call home. Roger continues to flirt with the young ladies, but he notices them looking at Don In these few quick shots, Madman sets up the episode's central narrative. Roger recognizes the attention Don receives. He's the younger, more handsome man, the one who attracts everyone's attention. And when Roger sees this, it upsets his idea of authority, that he holds a sort of upper hand, even over his friend. Don enters the restaurant phone booth and calls Betty. The phone book here is an authentic New York City registry from the 1960s. Betty walks around the house with the kids, dressed only in her underwear, curlers in her hair. Don asks her to prepare dinner for three, but Betty complains that she doesn't have enough food. He tells Betty to throw something together and hangs up. We next enter the Draper home with its bright pastels. Betty, Don, and Roger sit at the Draper's dining room table, their silence giving way to the sound of silverware against plates. The camera shows Betty eating salad, while Roger eats the steak she had prepared for herself. Roger notices this, and asks if Betty will have some steak, but Betty plays the situation gracefully, insisting that she seldom eats meat. The three tell stories from childhood. Betty says that she was chubby before she lost weight at a swim camp. Roger jumps in, telling a story about skinny dipping. When Don admits that he used to swim in a quarry, Roger acts surprised, noting Don's accent and suggesting that Don grew up on a farm. The men continue to drink late into the night, with Roger and Betty flirting casually. Betty seems to enjoy the attention, and asks Roger to tell war stories. He recalls that his father was a soldier in World War I, and eventually discusses his time sailing fuel ships in the Pacific theater of World War II. But Don refuses to jump in with stories of his own, noting that Roger's generation didn't leave any glory for Don's. Madman often uses military service as a window to masculinity and generational differences, and Red in the Face provides the first unmistakable examples of this, with Roger saying, Imagine stabbing someone in the face with a bayonet. There's an undercurrent of inadequacy here, that each younger generation is weaker, less enduring, that the brutality of war had hardened each generation successively less than the one before. Notice how Mad Men contrast Roger and Don against its younger generation. They're more physically powerful and more emotionally suppressed. It's the same cowboy idea Don discusses in episode 2, Ladies Room. But this scene shows us more. It gets to the cultural shift occurring at the time. We're reminded of this when Don comments about how Roger's generation used up all the glory. By the time of the Korean War, the world perceived the United States as a near-unrivaled national power. The existential threat of the previous world wars faded into apathy. Because of this apathy, the Korean War eventually became known as the Forgotten War. The reception of Korean War veterans at home is crucial to the show's portrayal of Don. He's from a generation that left home to fight for its country, but returned to a society indifferent to their service. After failing to garner respect for his service, Don focuses instead on earning respect through wealth. I'll again call attention to the filming here. Steady close-up shots comprise most of the scene. This cinematography is a great choice given the scene's composition. There's a lot of dialogue here, and John Hamm and Roger Slattery are some of Mad Men's most experienced actors. Close-ups on them allow us to notice the subtleties of each actor's performance, and this is important in a scene with so much dialogue and so much subtextual tension. As Roger entertains Betty with his stories, Don gets up to find another bottle of liquor. Betty moves to the kitchen, washing dishes at the sink. Roger enters and moves close to her, sliding his hands around her waist. He notes that she's been flirting with him throughout the night and moves closer to kiss her, but Betty turns away. Don enters, noticing something is up, but he doesn't let on what he's seen, and pours Roger a final drink before sending him out the door. Don returns to the kitchen, where he berates Betty. He accuses Betty of flirting with Roger all night, noting that she enjoys the attention. Betty insists that she was trying to be nice to Don's boss. She turns away defiantly, but Don grabs her arm in anger. Betty asks him if he wants to toss her around, but Don lets go. Echoing Dr. Wayne's earlier comments when he says that he feels like he's living with a little girl. It's a classic madman interaction filled with moral nuance. Betty obviously enjoys Roger's attention, perhaps welcoming it amidst Don's neglect. And Betty's duty as a housewife is complicated. She's been forced to throw her plans aside, put her kids to sleep, and entertain Don's boss. And in doing so, she must delicately balance Don's jealousy against offending Roger. Don's anger is misplaced here, though Betty's attention-seeking is over-the-top and childish. It's Roger who makes a pass at Betty. In the previous scene, Roger realizes that Don is the more desirable man. Fueled by alcohol and jealousy, Roger's pass at Betty is a veiled shot at Don, a way to prove that he can get a piece of Don's life, that perhaps Don isn't any better a man. Mad Men is full of moments where people try to be Don Draper, and Red in the Face is a reminder. That even roger isn't immune to this envy the next day roger walks into don's office offering an apology and a bottle of whiskey don remains seated throughout the exchange it's an awkwardly uncomfortable scene as roger attempts to apologize without actually admitting what he did while don acts aloof refusing to acknowledge anything and let roger off the hook meanwhile paul harry and ken gather in pete's office Paul asks Pete why he didn't join them for drinks at the bar, introducing Pete's new nickname, Humps. Pete reveals that he was having dinner with his in-laws, and the men make fun of his married lifestyle. He opens a box containing a porcelain chip and dip, with a red tomato dipping bowl at the center of two green leaves. This chip and dip was a wedding gift given to Matthew Weiner's parents. Weiner had been looking for an opportunity to use it as a prop. In Red in the Face, the chip and dip adds some comic relief while furthering the episode's more thematic emasculation. Pete explains that he received two of these dishes at his wedding. Trudy has tasked him with returning the duplicate platter. But when he skips his colleague's liquid lunch and heads to the returns counter at Bloomingdale's, he looks downright silly, standing in line with his odd wedding gift, surrounded by older women. Pete first explains his situation to an older woman at the counter, but she refers him to a younger girl who looks up the chip and dip, finding it under a registry in Trudy's maiden name. This annoys Pete, who asks for a refund, but Rosemary explains that she can only offer store credit. Just as he's about to leave, Pete runs into a country club friend named Matherton. Played by actor Teddy Sears, Matherton is an athletic, good-looking man who calls Pete by his nickname, Humps, and flirts with the girl at the counter. When Pete notices Rosemary's interest in Matherton, he also tries to charm her. He suggests that he could spend the refund on a necklace for her, but Rosemary isn't interested, and Pete quickly becomes spiteful. He takes the store credit and leaves, suggesting to Rosemary that Matherton has the clap. Pete returns to the office, where he shows off a rifle he's bought after returning the chip and dip. The boys laugh at the juvenile prank, and Pete steps outside, taking aim across the secretary pool. Some light music plays while we see a creative shot, the end of the gun barrel attached to the camera as it tracks across the office. Director Tim Hunter used the theme song from The Pink Panther as a temporary audio track for this shot, insisting music was needed to lighten the tone. Pete continues scanning across the office until his secretary, Hildy grabs the barrel. She reminds Pete about a meeting for the Nixon campaign, and the boys all follow from his office as she's left holding the gun. The Nixon meeting is another of Mad Men's expositions on generational differences. The younger men espoused John Kennedy, with Pete comparing him to Elvis Presley. But Roger and Burt both note Kennedy's lack of experience. They allude to Nixon's no-holds-barred political tactics, including the Pink Sheet, a document released by Nixon's campaign during California's 1950 Senate election, which compared his opponent, Helen Gahigan Douglas, to known communists in Congress. Douglas would earn the nickname, The Pink Lady, and a reputation as a communist sympathizer while Nixon became known by a more memorable name, Tricky Dick. During this meeting, Don recognizes his advantage over Roger, who seems old, wearing a pair of reading glasses as he discusses Nixon's long career in politics. Roger cues Don to enter the conversation, and Don does well to hide the grudge he continues to hold. Also of note here is Pete Campbell, whose instincts are once again correct. Pete understands the rock star appeal of John Kennedy, perhaps before anyone else in the office. The next two scenes appear in rapid succession, wrapping up the middle part of the episode. When Don arrives home that night, Betty greets him, but Don reminds Betty that he's still upset about her flirtation with Roger at dinner. Meanwhile, Pete sits in his living room with the rifle, totally emasculated, as he's scolded by his wife for exchanging the chip and dip. Pete's shown entering the office the next morning, the rifle over his shoulder, Don witnesses this with the building's elevator operator, Hollis, who looks at Pete suspiciously. But Don has something to discuss, and we see him bribing Hollis as the elevator doors close. This interaction originally had more dialogue, but it was cut in the final version of the episode. Peggy enters Pete's office while he sits on the sofa holding the rifle. She wants Pete to look over her copy for Belle Jolie, but before she can get a word in, Pete asks her to sit. He recounts his fantasy of killing a deer bringing it back to his wife and watching her cook it for him. And I'd go into the cabin and there'd be this woman waiting for me, standing by one of those old stoves with a big black pipe. And I'd hand it to her and she'd put it in a cast iron skillet. And then I'd sit at the table and she'd bring it to me. Pete continues to detail his fantasy as the two sit on Pete's sofa in a symmetrical two-shot, Peggy listening intently. And I'd wipe my knife on my knee. And then I would eat it while she watches. That would be wonderful. It's tough to interpret Peggy's feelings at the end of this scene. She seems both intrigued and overwhelmed, and she leaves Pete's office completely dizzied by this interaction. The monologue reveals Pete's feelings about masculinity. He describes his ideal man as authoritative, rugged, living in a cabin in the woods with his wife. None of these are things you could say about Pete. Hearing his idea of manhood helps us understand Pete's feelings of inadequacy, and he once again exposes these feelings to Peggy, Just like at the end of Mad Men's pilot episode, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. That same afternoon, Betty pushes a cart through the supermarket. All the food in this scene is real, and the set was built in the lunchroom at the studio. Betty spots Helen Bishop and approaches her to say hello, but Helen is distant. She eventually stops and confronts Betty. I was going, um... I was going through Glenn's treasure box the other day, and I found a lock of blonde hair. Your hair, he says. Recall that in episode three, Marriage of Figaro, Betty gives this to Glenn before putting him to bed. Helen is upset by this, and Betty tries unsuccessfully to explain. He asked me for it, and you gave it to him. He is nine years old. What is wrong with you? Betty becomes upset and slaps Helen in the face. She leaves her shopping cart behind as she hurries to leave the supermarket, while Helen stands motionless, shocked. Later that afternoon, Francine stops by the Draper's house to check on Betty, who admits that she's embarrassed. But Francine takes Betty's side, calling Helen pathetic. They talk about Betty's psychiatry, and Betty suggests that Dr. Wayne has been eyeing her sexually. Don and Roger return to Musso and Frank's for lunch. They gulp down oysters and martinis while discussing current events, from Soviet space dogs to Lucille Ball's divorce from Desi Arnaz. Don knows he has youth on his side and orders more drinks, knowing Roger will try to keep up. It's a fast-paced scene that includes a montage of oysters, martinis, and cigarettes. The montage ends with Don and Roger drunk, cracking jokes, before realizing they should return to the office to meet with Nixon's campaign. When they return to the office lobby, Hollis waits outside the elevator, I'm sorry gentlemen, Mrs. Sterling, Mr. Draper, I'm waiting for service. So am I, what are you talking about? We're out of order. Ugh. crap. This is the payoff to Don's earlier scene with Hollis and his lunch with Roger. He suggests they go back to lunch, but Roger insists they attend the meeting. They agree to take the stairs. This is Don's revenge. The two men labor up the stairs, with Roger struggling after his overindulgence at lunch. He stops for a moment, out of breath, and suggests they check on the elevator, but Don tells him to keep going. Maybe they're late too. Or maybe we could get them to come down and have the presentation on the eighth floor landing. There's plenty of seats. Damn the elevator. Well, what do you wanna do? We're almost there. The hell we are. Well, we can waste another five minutes talking about it if you want. Let's go. Don continues to tease Roger throughout the torturous climb, Most of the scene was filmed on the same set of stairs, with the production crew swapping out signs in each shot. Roger begins to slow, and Don spurs him on. They pass a pair of extras making out in the stairwell, and the young girl reminds Roger of Joan. Hello, redheads. A big breast. We'll find you one if we still have jobs. Want me to run ahead? Run? My name is on the building. They can wait for me. Roger tumbles at the landing of the 20th floor. He tells Don to go on, saying he's lost his tie clip. Don rushes ahead, leaving Roger behind. He enters Sterling Cooper's 23rd floor office in a rush, collecting himself and explaining to Pete that he took the stairs because the elevator was out of service. Bert introduces Don and Pete to Nixon's campaign representatives. Director Tim Hunter's original edits included an over-the-top scene, with actor Robert Moore skipping to jazz music as he brought these campaign executives into the Sterling Cooper office. But Weiner immediately cut the scene from the episode's final edit. Roger enters only moments later, toiling as he walks, his face ghastly pale. Bert introduces him, but Roger immediately lurches over and vomits right in front of the agency's newest, high-profile clients. You right, Roger? Get us some ice water. Oysters. I can see that. (laughs) The men leave Roger to rest, but Don remains. He looks sternly at Roger, asking if he's okay. Roger affirms, and Don walks away, a smirk on his face as the episode closes to the rapid-fire jazz of Rosemary Clooney's 1952 song Botcha Me, the swinging delivery mirroring Don and Roger's playful tit-for-tat revenge story. Roger's final scene was one of Mad Men's first memorable moments of comedy. It's the kind of joke that madmen would grow to embrace. Outlandish, but grounded in just enough reality to be believable. There were three takes of Roger vomiting, the editors eventually settling on the first. The crew ran a tube up John Slattery's pant leg and taped it to the side of his face. They used a clam chowder mixture for the vomit. The makeup is perhaps the most underrated aspect of this shot. Roger looks visibly ill throughout the last few scenes. It all contributes to the gotcha moment that Don has been setting up for Roger. We saw this in Don's refusal to explicitly forgive, and later when Don bribed Hollis. It's a neat way for Don to remind Roger that he's crossed a line, and it hints at something we'll see throughout the next few seasons, Don surpassing Roger in success. Madman's early episodes have reminded us several times of Roger's authority, but he's never felt as in command as Don. Throughout the show, we see others looking to Don for leadership, And Red in the Face's final scene hints that Don is simply more up to the task than Roger. He's younger, perhaps more energetic, at the height of his powers. Roger, meanwhile, is a man in decline. We talked earlier about how Roger's pass at Betty is his attempt to be like Don. This final scene is a reminder that he can't be. When taken together, Roger and Pete's stories are an entertaining commentary on masculinity and inadequacy. We've seen Mad Men address this generation's oppressive culture towards women. I think here Mad Men points out that men did not escape this. There's a shared feeling that manhood is defined by ruggedness and physical prowess, both in Pete's rifle, a symbol harkening back to the 1954 movie Apache, and in Roger's refusal to admit exhaustion. And in this episode, we sense both characters rejecting parts of themselves, in Pete's case, wimpiness, and in Roger's case, age. Both Roger and Pete's characters are closely tied to Don, and while Madman tries to pass this off as a generational comparison, I think there's more to it, something psychological, an attraction that makes them want to be like Don. Pete's story is one of maturation. It will eventually involve him letting go of this fantasy and embracing himself. And Roger's is one of decline, of the slow realization that he is no longer a young man. Red in the Face does well to set this up for future episodes. We shouldn't forget about Don here, His relationship with Betty strains even further in this episode, but the focus is on his view of friendship and retribution. It's not yet clear if Roger's friendship means something to him or if he's playing workplace politics, but what's obvious is Don's almost biblical sense of crime and punishment. This is not a man who forgets a grudge. This is not a man willing to let go. So why Red in the Face? This week's episode title is more straightforward. It reminds us of the embarrassment seen throughout the episode. By Pete, Betty, and Roger. It reminds us of physical exertion, and Roger's final struggle, and it perhaps points to the drunkenness and overindulgence we see in Roger. At the beginning of this episode, we talked about how Roger is a man who struggles with his vices, be they cigarettes or alcohol or women. The episode reminds us of each of these vices, and the episode title, Red in the Face, neatly sums them up in one tidy phrase. This episode has become a bit of a cult hit among Mad Men fans. It succeeds despite its darker themes, likely because it glosses over them with humor. Red in the face was perhaps our first hint that Mad Men would never take itself too seriously. And with that, we'll wrap up our review of Mad Men's seventh episode. An episode that marks, for me, the end of the first half of season one. We've seen Mad Men take on a variety of styles. We've seen the show portray brooding self-reflection we've seen focused character study, social commentary, and even ambitious reviews of the entire cast. And with Red in the Face, we've seen a more light-hearted type of storytelling. Through seven episodes, Mad Men announced its intention to take on an extensive set of characters, themes, and tones. After Red in the Face, the show seems to grow confident in itself, opting for larger, more unexpected narrative choices. There's so much to tell, and the story only goes deeper from here. We'll explore where it's headed in our next episode, one that takes us into Don's past and his introduction to The Hobo Code. Hi everyone, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to encourage you to follow us to be notified when new episodes arrive. I'd also encourage you to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact me with any feedback at podcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.